1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have uh, Daniel Smalley. He's at Brigham Brigham Young University. He's a physicist uh, there in Provo, Utah. We're going to be talking about 3D projections or 3D holograms. Uh, So, this will be a pretty cool call. So, Daniel, thank you for coming.
2: Yeah, my pleasure.
1: Yes, uh, I guess as a layperson, I don't really know much about holograms. Like, what is a hologram versus a 3D projection? And, And then let's talk about how you're improving it.
2: Well, I think that the the biggest difference is the screen. Uh, When we imagine a 3D image from science fiction, we imagine something that's projected out in air. We don't imagine having to look through glasses or having to look into a monitor to see that 3D image. And that then is the primary difference between volumetric technologies uh, that you can see like you look at a water fountain where the imagery just pops out. You don't have to be looking down into the water fountain to see it. So, and and the more traditional 3D, where you have to be looking into a screen like you look into a television. So that that's the biggest difference between what we're doing and uh, holography and other more traditional 3D approaches.
1: So how do uh, holograms work in a 3D so, versions?
2: Yeah, yeah. Holography has a very specific scientific um, definition, I mean, uh, holography has to do with the creation of wavefronts of light as light passes through patterns of lines and diffracts. Uh, And and by that definition, you have to be looking at some diffractive surface to see that hologram for light into your eyes. You have to be looking at some pattern of lines. Uh, By contrast, the uh, 3D projection in general isn't creating images with just light alone. Image points in a, in a volumetric display are actually little pieces of matter flowing around in the air. And it's the combination of that little piece of matter as a scatterer and light scattering off that little piece of matter that create the image. And you can give it a lot of its special abilities.
1: Okay. So um, where is the source of the light coming from to create a you know, hologram or a 3D projection? And where does the viewer see it as if it's coming from, or it's coming from nowhere?
2: Yeah, so in a hologram, light is coming either from the back and transmitting through a film or a diffractive surface or from the front, maybe from the top, you have lighting from the top and light is reflecting off that surface and uh, and being modulated by those lines. In a In a projection display or a volumetric display, the light can come from a couple of different places. It could be coming from... Just about anywhere. It can be coming remotely from some illumination source. It could be illuminated by room lights, or the the little particles themselves, the little pieces of matter that make up the image points, could be luminous. They could be emitting light themselves. Uh, So there's there's many different ways that light can be uh, emitted from an image point in a volumetric in a 3D projection display.
1: Well, we've seen you know in the movies like with Tony Stark, you know, in the Avengers, he that he puts on his gloves, he, he puts his hands into these holographic projections, and you know, all of a sudden it works. And I don't know, in real life, what is it like or what could it be like versus what we see in a movie?
2: So that, seeing that scene was actually annoying to me. I, I had been singing the praises of holography for most of my adult life at, the point, at that point when I, when I had seen it, um, that scene, and realized that that was something that holography couldn't do. Um, in, in particular, because light travels in straight lines through the air, uh, and, and so light would have to either burrow through Tony Stark's hand to get to his eyes, or somehow turn around in midair. And uh, it just—it just wasn't something I could imagine holography doing. And uh, I, I still believe that to be a fundamental uh, limitation. Uh, being able to have light, you know, have an image that wraps around the human body is, is a difficult problem to solve. But 3D projections can do it. If you can place light scatterers anywhere you want, uh there's there's nothing stopping you from having those light scatterers placed above and around behind uh the arms of, of an individual that you could actually live with and live in the same space as your three D display. I imagine, for example in medicine you you could imagine using a three D projection to project on a, a potential, you know, a, a a prosthetic design onto the stump of somebody who's lost an arm or something like this. You could actually fit it to their, mm. uh, to their stump. It could do And in fact, we have, we play little games in our, in our lab where we'll take little toys, like I've got a little enterprise and a little Klingon battle cruiser and we'll set it in the display. And I got a student who's got it, got the little toys shooting photon torpedoes and phasers back and forth at each other. Uh so oh, wow! So it really, yeah. So, I mean, you can, you can actually breathe life into these otherwise inanimate physical objects by uh, augmenting them with this uh, 3D projection technology.
1: So where is it used You know, for the common person? The only place I've ever seen holograms is maybe um, a sticker on a, a piece of merchandise that you know kind of looks a little bit orangey and, and green and you know, somewhat like a cheap hologram. Or I go to a science center and I'll see one. But are there any commercial applications or... Wide-scale use applications
2: of it for screen-based 3D. It's harder to find commercial applications, and it's because of the screen. for 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 3D screen-based 3D to be useful, it needs to be really big, so that everywhere you're looking, you're you're more or less looking into that display. Uh, for this newer 3D projection technology, there's a lot more use cases, especially for small displays. Uh, we imagine. Uh, you know, once right now our images are really small, I mean thumb thumbnail size. But uh we, we hope to get them soon to maybe an eight inch uh maximum dimension. And at that point you could imagine using it for aerospace surveillance, you know, tracking satellites, make sure there's no collisions or conjunctions. You could imagine using it for uh medical imaging, looking at catheters as they pass through uh I don't know, the vasculature of the body during uh, you know, an intervention. Or uh, you're even, you know, telepresence, having little disembodied heads pop up out of your phone or uh, watch and uh, turn around and talk to you, you know, just like a a real person would. Or all possibilities as we we scale this technology.
1: So it sounds like it would have a big home in augmented reality applications.
2: Yeah, I think so. And one of the big bonuses is most 3D is really computationally intensive. Uh, that is to say, even a small holographic display can take a supercomputer to run. Uh, wow. But with with 3D projection technology, you really got uh, It really only requires you know red, green, blue, and XYZ uh, for every image point in space. And so for just the amount of computing power that your video card has in your laptop, you could run you know a, a pretty decent telepresence app, right? With maybe a million little particles running around. Uh, you know, drawing a face for you to talk to. So I think that there's a there's a lot of advantages with, you know, computational complexity being much lower.
1: So what would be a, a more realistic interpretation of what's possible? You know, Star Wars, perhaps, they were grainy, those images, but they're from a long yeah. time ago, too.
2: Well, and they did that on purpose. I, I think that, you know, a lot of what happened in Star, Star Wars was trying to make, um, to, to tarnish science, uh, science fiction so that it looked... You know, quotidian. Made it made it, make, it, make it look every day by making it look a little dusty. But the uh, and in fact, they you know in the Princess Leia, George Lucas actually created vertical scan lines you know, on purpose so that you would you would know that it was something different than television, which had horizontal scan lines. So all of this was carefully carefully done to create a certain response in the in the viewers. But I, I think that I think we can expect. Uh, With 3D projection technology to be able to create all the images from science fiction that we've seen so far, including a few that we haven't seen. So definitely, I think we'll see uh, Princess Leia projections. I definitely think we'll see an avatar table. Uh, I think we'll see that Iron Man display. And I think we're going to see something brand new. I think we're going to see displays that, uh, that are customizable so that we'll all be looking in the same space, but seeing something totally different, if that makes any sense. Uh, How would that would that be paint?
1: possible?
2: Well, one of the very interesting things about 3D projection, at least the way that we're doing it in our lab, is that we can get light to scatter in one direction but not the other. So yes. if, if you tried to project Princess Leia uh, with an isotropic scatterer, with, you know, with, with fireflies, for example, you'd be able to see the front of Princess Leia and the back of her at the same time. You'd be able to see both her hair buns from every direction all the time. She'd look like a ghost, yes. so to speak. If you okay. want to make it look self-solid, you have to have the ability, for example, to take one particle that only scatters forward and use that to draw the front of Princess Leia. And then you take another particle that only scatters backward and draw the back of Princess Leia, and then you won't have this problem. So it should look self-solid. And, uh, but you can use that very same technology to make everybody see something different. So you could imagine a case where you know you're in, there's this family room and you've got a little kid who's doing their homework in the middle of the room, um, you know, in some central volume, image volume. And then right next to her, mom is talking to grandpa, also in that same volume. And then next to her, you know, dad is playing a soccer game. And, you know, coupled with parametric speakers, they could have these totally immersive experiences, totally customized, Uh, and yet at the same time, not wearing glasses. Not looking down at a screen, which would be pretty unique for uh, an American family room, and uh, but but at the same, so in a way, what we're doing is instead of abstracting people into the digital world, uh, we're taking data out and we're making it physical and we're putting it in in our world. We're making a physical part of our
1: space. Yeah, that's a lot cooler. I like that a lot better. Um, so, how does 3D projection work? I mean, can you reiterate it again and compare it to a hologram just once more? It just would help me get the concept and listeners too.
2: Yeah. So the way this works really sounds like science fiction from the very start. And we we begin with a laser tractor beam, uh, and and we use this laser tractor beam to pick up a little particle of paper, and we scan that little particle around. Now, the image space. And as we scan it, we illuminate it with red, green, and blue lasers. That means that we can make it glow any color we want. So the combination of illuminating that particle and scanning it through the air gives us an effect not unlike uh, what kids do with sparklers on the 4th of July. They'll write your name in the air if you move that sparkler fast enough. So this is an effect called persistence of vision. So if we can get that little glowing particle moving around fast enough, we can make uh, we can make images. And if we move it even faster, we can make those images move, you know, frame by frame and do little animations, which is something we have started to do. I've actually we've got little stickmen that jump up and down on on your finger or uh, um, other little animations.
1: Are you using ambient dust particles, or where do the particles sit? And do they sit in the framework, or then you're just you're good enough where they can move around randomly, and still you can cap, you can use them to create an image as long as there's a certain density.
2: We have a little cocktail of uh, of particle pieces that that sit in a reservoir, and we have this automated technique for picking up particles out of this reservoir. Uh, the hope is that we can get good enough at automatically picking up these particles that even if you knocked it out, even if you stuck your hand in the image, and knocked out the particle, that it could know, bend down, pick up a new one fast enough that you'd never even know anything had changed or anything had happened. And that way you could make it uh, really robust. But but we got a little reservoir of particles. It it picks a, picks up from the little reservoir and it draws an image. And this, yeah, that, that's, that's basically the, the MO.
1: Well, again, it the picks up a particle. What does that mean? It magnetically moves one around electrostatically. Like, how does it position and hold the particle in a certain spot? And oh, would right, it be a, possible yeah. to use, natural phenomena natural brownian motion of dust in an area to project the image onto or a cloud or something like that you know vapor so,
2: yeah yeah to answer your second question i mean there are certainly people out there who worked with uh, ambient dust in fact one of the earliest volumetric display concepts was put forth by ken perlin in uh, in a in a paper and a patent he called hollow dust where he says let's just take the dust bunnies dust motes floating in the air and we're gonna scan the room to find where they are. And once we've found them, we're gonna shoot visible laser beams at them to make them glow in the air. The problem being, of course, that you need a lot of dust in the air to make images that are, are nice and complete. Um, the bonus here with what we're doing is that uh, you, don't, you don't have to modify the environment at all. Uh, so what we're doing is we take a laser beam and we focus it with a lens, but the lens is imperfect and it creates an imperfect focus. It's got a hole in it. And that hole is a low intensity region, it's a dark spot. And when a little particle gets in that dark spot, uh, if it tries to escape, it gets warmed up by the uh, bright bright areas around the dark spot, and, and that creates kind of a jet action that pushes it back uh, into the center. So it's basically stuck there, it's trapped. Uh, and then once it's in, in the trap, you can move the laser beam around, and uh, you can move that hole around, and then the particle is going to be obligated to be dragged around with it.
1: Huh. So you're using essentially like a cage of laser beams to keep particles in a certain area?
2: Yep, that's right. We call them bottle beams. Uh,
1: yep. huh. I guess it's like when you go to a science place, you know, a science lab, and there's a ping pong ball, and it, it sits in a column of air, and it stays in the column of air because the pressure there is lower. and Outside of the column of air is higher. So, yeah that's, right. I guess
2: yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, all right. So, by having a reservoir, what can you say what the particles are made of in the reservoir?
2: Yeah, it's cellulose, cellulose or, or paper. It's little carboniferous uh, particles.
1: So, there's no danger of someone like inhaling.
2: <laughs> oh, they could. <laughs> I mean, they could. They could absolutely inhale it, but it would just be one of the, you know, thousands or millions of particles we inhale, you know, at, at regular intervals. I, the the average American household produces 40 pounds of this dust every year, right? So, uh we're we're breathing this stuff in all the time. It wouldn't it wouldn't add very, you know, it would it wouldn't have any effect on the total amount of dust we're we're breathing in. In fact, as you have mentioned, um you could configure your display to be like a sponge where it's actually pulling dust out of the air when it's not doing other things. It's making, so
0: wow.
2: it would actually make the air a little cleaner than it was otherwise. So yeah, we don't consider the uh, the health, you know, there, there didn't necessarily be a health issue.
1: Actually, that's really interesting. What, um, what about other applications besides 3D projection? What if, um I don't know, you would mount uh, a column of this above a doorway and it would uh, trap and push down down a gradient somehow, light like gradients, uh, particles? And take them out of the you know, out of the ambient air. Could it be used to clean a space of particles?
2: Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it could. And uh while it may not be very effective on the earth where there are, you know, other more efficient ways of doing it perhaps. Uh maybe mm-hmm. in a place like uh maybe in other places with um I don't know. You
1: mean you know, like in, in space? The
2: yeah, I'm so thinking we're... in space. The, the problem with space is that there's no air. And you've gotta have air for this to work. So there might be places where you just can't be blowing the air around or something like that. Yeah, I'm sure there's it may be maybe let's say that you're dealing with, for example, uh dangerous things. Let's say you're trying to move, you know, malaria or something else from one bottle to another and you're just using in teeny tiny droplets and you don't want anybody to touch it, uh, you could use this to, you know, transport little droplets from one place to another without anybody ever having to touch it. Uh, so there is a lot of non-destructive testing, and there, I mean levitation is used broadly, and it has been for decades in, in lots of different fields. So it, it does have pretty broad applications outside of uh, display.
1: Yeah, well, I don't want to go there too far, but yeah, I guess. So what size particle range does this work for? You know, if you have a tuned system,
2: so uh, particles can be trapped. You know, from nanometers up to fifty or a hundred microns, which is actually really big. Uh, we, de- we tend to use particles in the 10-micron uh, range. Um, and then, then, of course, it just depends on what we're trying to do. If we want to get nice directional scattering and use a bigger particle, if we want uh, light to go everywhere, if we want it just to glow everywhere, we'll, we'll use a smaller particle.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. How do you modulate resolution? You know, in a, in a given field of view, if you have areas of smaller particles and larger particles, I'm sure you could create all kinds of different effects. You can create, like, the body of an object and like, maybe a diffuse area around it, for instance, if you wanted that effect, by like, having different sized particles trapped?
2: Yeah, definitely having lots of traps uh, enables us to do all sorts of uh, potentially interesting things. I think the biggest thing that trapping multiple particles enables us to do is to make the display bigger. So right now, uh, or at least you know, until not long ago, what we were doing was just taking a single particle and moving it through a complicated path to make our images. But that's not very scalable as an approach. So one of the things we can do instead is have tr- lots of traps holding lots of particles. And instead of moving it through a complicated path, we can just move it through a simple path, maybe just up and down, for example. So you can imagine a plane of particles and just move up and down and get illuminated as they go, and then uh, you can imagine making much much bigger images uh, that way. That's how that's how we hope to get to eight inches and beyond. Though you know, inches is not the end here. We have sketched uh, sketched up designs that we hope will enable us to get to meter-sized uh, displays. Wow. So we can do soldier so, decoys and this sort of thing.
1: Oh wow! Huh. Yeah, I was going to ask you about some of the anticipated future applications. So that would be one. Any others that uh, are really interesting to you?
2: So in addition to medical visualization and aerospace surveillance, I mean, definitely uh, things like telepresence. But uh, there's a lot of people who have approached me uh, who seem to be really interested in in, uh, AI agents, in making AI corporeal. So taking Alexa or Siri and, you know, giving them a little body, uh, enabling them to interact with us face to face uh you could imagine for example something like a hollow nurse uh that could be projected around could follow a loved one or a senior citizen around the house who could help them with medical you know with medication compliance make sure that they're taking the right stuff at the right time and point to the label or do medical education or even point out fall dangers as they're walking around during the day uh that that could be uh that could be you know, have a little a little friend. And the funny thing is that, you know, if it's customizable, it could be a little friend that only you see. It could exacerbate this thing where you're walking down the street today and everybody seems to be schizophrenic they're, if they're on their Bluetooth. It could get worse, right, where everybody's seeing something that only they can see and, uh, and talking to them.
1: Yeah. I imagine, you know, what if you're in a, I don't know a bank or let's say a nightclub and the security level sees certain things that no one else can see? And you know yeah, the yeah. customer level they see stuff, and the you know the boss sees yeah. other stuff,
2: yeah In the same environment
1: people literally would see different things, which is pretty cool,
2: yeah, according to your security clearance or your proclivities or your the language you speak, you know all these things could be customizable, and that could make it, yeah for very interesting scenarios
1: you have redacted reality then. yeah. <laughs> Well, very good. Well, what's, what's the best way for uh, folks to see some of this stuff? You know, what's a link to talk them and uh, to ask questions?
2: Yeah, so we uh, we have a website, uh, Small holography, and uh, we have uh, BYU has a, a bunch of resources online through their uh, through the university pages, and uh, we're always making uh, making things available through publications. So uh, we've got we're happy to point people to patents and papers that we're publishing out of our group.
1: Excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.